It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Mr. Ullman? Yes? I'm Jack Torrance. Oh, well, come on in, Jack. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Mr. Ullman. This is my secretary, Susie. Hello. Susie, how do you do? Have any trouble finding it? Oh, no problem at all. I made the trip in three and a half hours. Wow, that's a very good time. Very good place, huh? Jack, just uh, make yourself at home. Would you like some coffee? Well, if you're going to have some, I wouldn't mind. Thanks. Susie? Oh, and would you ask Bill Watson to join us? Yes, I will. Hello and welcome back to the Kubrick's Universe podcast. Your usual host Jason has handed me the keys to the Yellow Beetle today and I'm here to introduce you to another SCAS Academy session hosted by our very own Mark Lentz. A quick shout out to our first patron, Hal 9000, and also to long-time listeners Gene, Howard and Truly. Head over to patreon.com and search Kubrick's Universe to show your support and help us continue this podcast. A few episodes ago, we spoke to Howard Berry about a new book that has just been released called Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It was produced and written by Lee Unkrich and Jonathan Rinsler. Well, now we speak to Lee Unkrich himself about his new book, which was 10 years in the making. Lee worked at Pixar Animation for 25 years in various departments. His films include A Bug's Life, Cars, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, Wall-E, Brave, Monsters University, Inside Out, The Good Dinosaur and all four of the Toy Story films. Lee won Oscars and BAFTAs for Best Animated Feature Film for his work directing Toy Story 3 and Coco. But it's really Lee's love and fascination for Stanley Kubrick's The Shining that places him firmly in Kubrick's universe. We start with discussions about the launch party for the collector's edition release of Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which was held at the Kubrick Estate at Chiddickborough in December 2022. In attendance were Stanley's wife Christiane and his brother-in-law and producer of The Shining, Jan Harlan, as well as many special guests. So it's my extreme pleasure to present this conversation, which was recorded in early January 2023. We start with one of The Shining's original editors, Gordon Stainforth's reminiscences of that great evening, at the Kubrick Estate. Yeah, it was wonderful, yeah. It was just amazing. Absolutely fabulous. Mm. Who all was there? Oh, gosh. um, Jan, a lot of their family, lots of people from the press, um, the Grady, the Byrne sisters. Um... Oh, it's just it, it, yeah, and there was the, our crew, Jill Smith and um, Adam Ungo from the editing with me. So the three of us assistant editors were there. Um, but I think the, the number of people who were actually on The Shining, I think there's only about six of us all together. And there's a nice um, group shot, actually, which um, 
the guy took for Tashin uh, books. He, the photographer, he was actually, um, is he the son, grandson in law? Um, uh, Hobbs was uh, taking really good pictures. Yeah, well, it's a very nice picture. It's, it's of me and Jan and the Burns sisters and Jill and Adam. All the people who were, who were there who were actually on the shiny. It's a nice picture. Well, um, anyhow, it was, it was lovely to see them again. It was absolutely brilliant. And, and I mean, so I'm rather dominating things now, but it was just, it was like going into a dream world because Chidikbury is like a palace inside. It's, it's like a stately home. And I mean, because of the money in the Kubrick family and Christiana's artistic ability, the way the house has been done up is absolutely stunning. You might as well be in a state, stately home like Luton Hoo or somewhere. <laughs> incredible and um you know with, with i think there must have been at least 150 people there um but it was very kind of elitist i was pretty glad to be invited actually um and of course everyone was immaculate i was a bit worried about the dress code i even went and got a new jacket because i thought a suit would be too formal but goodness i was glad i had because everybody was just looking so good you know there was no no one scruffy there um yeah and and the drinks just flowed i mean i think there must have been about four kind of waitresses scuttling around and 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 there were wonderful little eats you know i mean it was it was, it was sort of kubrick quality everything was better than you normally expect it was just done so well it was stunning and it was meant to go from six o'clock to nine o'clock, but Jill and Adam and myself were still there at quarter past eleven. <laughs> I want to welcome Lee, our guest, hey. Lee Uncridge. Hey, and Gordon. Yes. Hey, Howard. Howard. Yeah. Is Howard there? <laughs> yes. So, since the three of you are here, we were just talking about the party, the rollout party at the estate. Oh, yeah. Chittagpur, yeah. Any recollections that you'd like to share from that event while you're all three? Um, well, I mean, it was a, it was an amazing evening. I, I was very sick that whole week that I was in London. So that was the only thing that was a bit of a drag for me is that I was still not feeling a hundred percent at the party. Um, but it was lovely. I mean, it was, it was speaking for myself. It was a bit intimidating for me. I had been, to, I had been, out to Chittickbury a couple of other times. So it wasn't about being there that was intimidating. It was that the event was all about this book, you know, which, which is not just about the shining, but it's also very much about Stanley. And um, <clears throat> I found myself sitting on stage being asked questions about Stanley when Christiana was just sitting feet away from me looking right at me and I was like intensely aware of every syllable that came out of my mouth, <laughs> trying to make sure that I didn't make an ass out of myself. Um, so that is a big memory for me. I I'm glad that, uh, so many of the, um, the crew members were able to come like Gordon and some of the editorial team, um, Lisa and Louise Burns were there who played the twins, uh, the Grady twins in the film. Um, it, I mean, it was just, 
it was just incredible to be having the event in Stanley's space. I mean, the, the room where we did the kind of Q&A and moderated talk was one of two rooms that were Stanley's offices when he was living there. And then the reception was in the other room that was his office. So, um, yeah. I mean, every time I'm at Chittickbury, I'm just kind of, I quietly fanboy out inside of myself that I'm there. Um, and it's, but it's really, it's more like humbling for me than anything. Just knowing that this man who had such an influence on me, on my career, on my taste as a filmmaker, so many things that, um, it's kind of a wondrous thing to be able to still to be in that space. Here we are, you know, 24 years after his death. Um, but the house is still there. Christiana is still there. His family is still there. And, and so you can, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's kind of magical to feel, you kind of feel his presence. I don't know how else to say it. That's great. Howie, do you have anything to add? Oh gosh. Um, well, n- not really. I mean, other than it was a really wonderful evening, I think I think Lee is is always far too humble about his achievement, um, and that um, it was just wonderful to see people with the book for the very first time, having you know spoken about this for well for between Lee and myself at least for ten years, but to see other people see it and and appreciate it and get so excited. Um, about what they're seeing in front of them was uh, really was an amazing part of a lovely event. Excellent. All right. I was talking so I was talking so much. I didn't really have much chance to look at the book. <laughs> I'm afraid. I'm sorry. All right. Well, we're going to take about thirty minutes to for Lee to tell us all about the book. So. I mean, I saw The Shining when I was 12 years old. I was almost 13. I saw it when it first came out in theaters. And um, I can't say I was obsessed with it immediately, but it definitely kind of burrowed into my subconscious immediately. Um, A few days after seeing the movie, I bought um, a paperback uh, movie tie-in edition of Stephen King's novel. And started, you know, spent the summer kind of reading that voraciously. And I was aware that the book was very different than the movie, but I kind of loved both of them. The frustrating thing with the film was that I, you know, I only saw it that one time in theaters. And this was kind of near the beginning of the dawn of the video age. And so there was quite a long wait before the film came out on video. And even when it did come out on video, you know, the studios were still trying to figure out how to handle selling movies or renting movies. And and so The Shining um, from Warner Brothers was a rental-only title. You know, you could only video stores could buy it, and then you could rent it. So I was renting it all the time and kind of waiting, hoping that someday I'd actually be able to buy it. Um, and, and, you know, that day finally came, and uh, I finally was able to have my own Betamax copy of, of The Shining. Uh, which I watched again and again, and I showed it to all my friends. And um, in terms of the the beginning of the seeds of my obsession with knowing more about the making of the film, um, there were kind of two things. One, in my movie tie-in, 
uh, of The Shining, which I still own, actually, uh, there was a section of black and white stills in the middle of the book. And at some point, I don't remember when, I noticed that one of the stills, which was a, a an image of Shelley Duvall cooking breakfast in the kitchen, I realized that I didn't think that that was anything that was in the movie. And so I went back through my tape and confirmed that, no, that's, that wasn't a scene in the movie. And so that really started to get my wheels spinning a very long time ago, thinking, well, wow, if if that scene was not in the film, were there other scenes that were not in the film that had been filmed? And so I remember going on a quest to try to track down a screenplay. But Stanley held such um, such tight reins over everything that there was very little out in the world. There was only, the only thing I could find was um, a, uh, what they call a post-production screenplay, which was a, literally a transcription of the absolute finished film. And that was disappointing to me because I think at that point I had heard about the hospital epilogue. For those of you who don't know, there was a whole epilogue uh, on the film where the the manager character played by um, uh, Barry Nelson um, visited Wendy and Danny in the hospital. And it was a scene that was actually in the film when it was in limited release in New York and Los Angeles. Uh, but then a few days after releasing, Stanley changed his mind and decided that he didn't want the scene in the film. And so he literally hired an editor on each coast to to uh, be taken around in a limo from theater to theater to physically cut the scene out of the prints, um, which I, th I think it's the only time anything like that's ever happened that I've ever heard of. Anyway, I was aware of this scene. And so I, I was trying to find a screenplay because I really wanted to see what the scene was. I was just kind of transfixed with this notion of there being more to the film than what I'd seen. I told you I'd be rambling. So I'm rambling and I hope that's okay. Yes. Um, so I spent many, many years trying to find anything I could. At some point, I found a very early treatment that was kind of out in the world, um, uh, more of an outline, really, that was an attempt to, uh, I could tell it was from the early days of Stanley trying to figure out how he was going to adapt The Shining. So I, I did find that, that was out in the world, but there's really almost nothing else. So I just tried to find articles and images and whatever I could. And I just had them in folders on my computer for many years. And at some point I thought, hmm, you know, now that with the dawn of the internet and blogs and this and that, I thought, well, maybe I, I could put these things out and maybe there's at least one other person in the world who likes The Shining as much as I do. And they'll appreciate seeing the stuff that I'd collected. And so I created this um, blog at theoverlookhotel.com, which still exists. And I started putting things up there. I, you know, I, it was mostly things having to do with the production of the film, um, quotes from Stanley, sometimes fan art if, if I liked it. And um, an odd thing happened at a certain point, a couple of people who were on the crew reached out to me. And I had never thought that that was a possibility that putting this out into the world, that that, that could happen. But I think the first person who contacted me was Jeff Blith who was the camera operator on the helicopter during the, the title sequence shoot. And uh, he was a really, really nice guy, really helpful. And lo and behold, he had a bunch of photos from their shoot that they had done uh, and some others as well that I'd never seen. And so that was my first uh, inkling that there 
could be other images out in the world that I didn't know about, that nobody knew about, that had never been published. And so I, I started to obsess over that. Um, then Stanley, of course, passed away in 1999, excuse me, in 1999. And um, several years after uh, the, the family donated his archives to, uh, to the London College of Communications. And so just as a sidebar, during all this time, of course, I'm having my own career. I started as a, I went to film school. I started as an editor. Uh, I, I found myself at Pixar where I ended up staying for 25 years, um, edited some films there and then started to direct. Uh, and it was while I was making Toy Story 3, while I was directing that film that I think I, I first heard about the Kubrick archive. And so I knew I was going to be in London to do press for the film. And so I, I contacted Richard Daniels, um, who was the, the, the chief archivist at the time. And I arranged to come visit. Uh, I tacked on like three extra days on the end of my trip to, to go visit the archive. And um, I spent all three of those days only looking at all the materials having to do with The Shining. And my head was kind of blown wide open at what I was seeing. Um, you know, not only was I finally seeing a screenplay that had the hospital scene, but I was seeing loads of other scenes that that I had uh, I didn't even know about. Um, they had every last thing from Stanley's notes on on a Stephen King's novel. Not only the, the the finished published novel, but early galleys of the novel when it wasn't even called The Shining yet. Um, and then all of his work with Diane Johnson, working on the screenplay, doing all their outlining and, and just kind of figuring out what this adaptation was going to be. Um, loads of production stills that I'd never seen before. All kinds of material. And I think it was at that point that I first had the notion that perhaps there was a book there because I knew that there had been a lot of writing about The Shining from a critical perspective, from a critical analysis perspective, um, but there was very little info about the actual production of the film. And so it seemed to me that there was a market for that. Um, and I imagine from the beginning doing a book with Tashin because they had already done um, some work with the Kubrick estate uh, had done some some great great books, um, and so I reached out to Jan Harlan, who um, was Stanley's is Stanley's brother in law and um, uh, was also the executive producer of The Shining. And uh, I introduced myself. I let him know about my pedigree, the work I'd done as a filmmaker, and that I was very very interested in doing a book on the making of The Shining. And he said, oh, yes, wonderful. Yes, we would love to do a book like that with you. The problem is somebody else just approached us to do a book on the making of The Shining. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, what are the odds of that? So I was a bit disheartened for a moment. But then I said, well, you know what? Why don't I mean, why don't you reach out to this other person and um, see if they might be interested in talking with me? And maybe maybe we could collaborate on this together. So Jan put me in touch with um, Jonathan Rinsler. Um, and it turned out that Jonathan lived in the San Francisco Bay area, which is where I live. And so I invited him to have lunch at Pixar 
and we hit it off immediately. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jonathan's pen name he, that he writes under is J.W. Rinsler. And at the time he was working for Lucasfilm and um, had written all of the definitive books on the making of uh, the Star Wars films and Indiana Jones. And he had done an alien book at the time. And he was this very renowned uh, author of these types of books. Um, but he didn't have any research or interviews or anything having to do with The Shining. And I already had amassed uh, a bunch of material. So, but, but I had never written a book. And so it just seemed like it was a perfect partnership. And so we set off on what became a, a multi-year endeavor to um, start to figure out what this book could be. Um, and unfortunately, it was, it was several years before Tashin agreed to do the book. Um, you would think they would jump at it, but they were in the middle of doing their 2001 book. They didn't know how it was going to sell. So they were very hesitant to commit to another Kubrick title until the 2001 book had come out. Um, in the meantime, I was feeling worried because, you know, nobody who worked on The Shining was getting any younger. And a lot of people who worked on The Shining were kind of mid, mid or even later in their careers at the time that they did it. Many had passed on, many were getting very old. And so it seemed to me vital to try to track down everybody I could as quickly as possible and conduct interviews. And I mean, that ended up being the right way to go because in the course of creating this book, I think thinking off the top of my head, one, two, three, four, four or five people passed on, unfortunately. Um, but I was able to talk with them extensively. And so their voices are very much in the book. Anyway, um, without a commitment from a publisher, I basically had to self-finance this whole endeavor. I, you know, I paid Jonathan Rinsler to write the book. Um, he conducted some of the interviews, um, specifically with Christiana and Jan, because he was going to be over in London at the time and was able to do that. I did most of the interviews myself and, I was in the middle of my career and making movies, so I pretty much just had to do them on the weekends. Um, but I tried every weekend or so to line up at least one person to talk to. And um, I mean, that was an endeavor in of itself, just tracking everybody down, finding them. You know, not easy at all. Gordon was one of the easier ones because Gordon had an online presence. Uh, and so I was able to talk to him pretty early on. Um, but Everyone else was a real task. I mean, once I would find people, they would invariably introduce me, say, to a couple other people. And so I was able to spread my tendrils over time. But there were some folks that I just, you know, like Lisa and Louise Burns, I, you know, I spent years trying to find them. You know, they're all over social media now. So it's like easy. If I'd started this project now, I could have found them. But I, I spent a long time trying to find them. I spent a very long time trying to track down Shelley Duvall. Um, and, uh, you know, and I was also trying to track down historical interviews, like any people who worked on the film that had ever been interviewed for anything. I tried to contact those places to see if I could get my hands on like full transcripts of, 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 uh, the interviews that they'd given. And amazingly, I was able to get all of those pretty much in every case. So it was just really a lot of exhaustive work of, of compiling um, all this material. I did have one thing hanging over me, though, that I was concerned about, which is that even though there were a lot of photos in the Stanley Kubrick archive covering the production, it, they only covered kind of select 
certain aspects of the production. Um, I, I later learned that Stanley did not want to have a unit photographer on the set. Um, because when he released stills from his films, he liked them to be actual stills from the film. He didn't, he wasn't so into, you know, stills taken by a photographer on the set. Um, and so, uh, the only photographs that were taken, there were some chunks taken by Jan Harlan. There were, I found two rolls of film that were actually taken by Stanley himself. And, um, and then there were a bunch of photos taken by Murray Close. Murray Close was a, a young guy who had been dating Stanley's daughter, Anya. They went to school together and, and Murray got a job being kind of a PA basically on the set, but he also was a budding photographer. And so Stanley let him take photos occasionally on the set. So Murray's photos were all in the archive as well. Murray, by the way, went on to be an extremely successful, he still is a very successful unit photographer on very huge A-list films like the entire Harry Potter series. Um, anyway, so my concern was that the photos covered, they were great and they had like really wide coverage of certain moments in the film, like say the, 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 the ballroom scene in, in the 1920s with all the extras or Wendy and Danny exploring the maze outside. Uh, there were a lot of photos covering those moments, but there were, you know, wide swaths of the production that didn't have any coverage. And I, I was really nervous um, that I wasn't going to have the material that was going to be necessary to do uh, a, a complete book and especially the kind of book that Tashin would want to publish. Um, one of the other people that was tricky for me to track down was uh, Dan Lloyd, who played Dan young Danny in the film. Um, I didn't know much about him or where he was. He had just kind of disappeared off the map and uh, I, I heard rumor that he was a biology teacher at a community college in Kentucky. And so I literally started going through the websites of every little community college around Kentucky that I could find. And eventually, lo and behold, I found him on the faculty roster of a, of a college and it had his email address. And so I wrote to him. And I didn't hear anything back from him for a very long time. And he finally did write back to me. And um, I would lay it on thick, by the way, when I would when I would contact people. I would tell them who I was and the films I directed and blah, blah, blah. Just trying to, you know, and that the this project was being done with the support of the Kubrick Estate and Warner Brothers. Um, everything I could to get them to agree to talk to me. Um, and Dan was very nervous to talk to me. He, he A, he didn't like shining a light on himself. You know, he, at the time, really, he didn't want his students to know what he had done. He didn't want that to be a distraction. And so he hadn't given any interviews or anything. Um, and he also, he was very protective of Stanley and, and Stanley's privacy and secrecy. And so, um, and, you know, and this is decades later, he still felt that way. And so I finally connected him with Jan Harlan and Jan vouched for me, vouched for the project. And at that point, Dan opened up. And so I interviewed Dan a couple of times on the phone, really lengthy uh, phone calls, phone interviews. And, um, and that was fantastic. And then interestingly, I think it was the act of me finding him and, and getting him to kind of come out of his shell a bit to talk about the film. Um, loosened himself up so 
you know, I noticed he started appearing at autograph shows in Kentucky. Um, and he would always donate the money to charities. It was really sweet. Um, but I also, because I have a standing Google search on The Shining, I see everything every day that's printed around the world. Um, I noticed that he had given an interview to a British newspaper. And so I read it. It was great. Um, but there was a photograph of, of Dan. Uh, they photographed him in a cemetery for some reason. And he was holding, he's smiling, and he's holding a, a four by six photograph. And I'm zooming in and I'm trying to see what it is. And I couldn't quite tell what it was specifically, but I could tell that it was a photo inside the hedge maze at night in the snow. And so I was immediately intrigued because it wasn't an image I, I was familiar with. And I um, reached back out to Dan and I asked him about this photo that he was holding. And he said, oh, yeah, I just I pulled that out of my parents' photo album. And I said, wait, what? <laughs> There's a photo album? And he said, yeah, my, my dad took a whole bunch of pictures on the set. And... Um, and I and he said he took it out of the photo album. And so I said, "Wow, I would I would really like to meet your parents, um, not just to see what photos they have, but you know, of course, I wanted to interview them as well. They were both living; they still are both living." And again, Dan was very hesitant. Um, in, in this case, he was protecting his parents, and uh, it took a little while, as a lot of things did on this book. And you know, over time, I gained Dan's trust. Um, I sent a giant box of Pixar toys to his kids. I mean, I was like really doing whatever I could to grease the wheels. And finally, he agreed to connect me with his parents. And so that started again with phone calls. His father, Jim, didn't ever want to be on the call. He wanted his wife, to, his wife, Anne, to do all the talking. So I would interview Anne, and sometimes I'd hear Jim piping up in the background. Um, and I got to be friendly with them, got some great interviews with them. And um, one summer, I was going to be heading back to the Midwest where I grew up for a family for a family reunion on my wife's side. And so I reached out to both Dan and his parents. They live in different states. His parents live in Illinois and Dan's in Kentucky. And I said, I would really love to come meet you in person. And they were all up for it. So I went on a little road trip from, uh, from Cleveland where I grew up and I drove down to, um, I think I went to see his parents first in Illinois. Actually, I wasn't driving from Cleveland. Not that that matters. I was in Chicago. Um, so I drove to this little town that uh, uh, that where his parents lived. And um, I walked in the door, parked in their driveway. I walked in the door. And the first thing I saw was their, I guess, their kitchen table. And all over the kitchen table were costumes from The Shining. Wow. They had Jack, they had Jack's, one of Jack's jackets. They had a whole bunch of Danny's costumes. I mean, I was just like, can imagine I was gobsmacked seeing these things because I knew immediately what they were. Um, and Danny's parents couldn't have been kinder. We talked a lot. I interviewed them a lot more. And at some point they pulled out this photo album and I started leafing through it. And again, I was gobsmacked by image after image. I mean, none of these had ever been seen before outside of his family. And Jim basically had more or less free reign to photograph whatever he wanted. He just, Stanley just said, don't ever sell these to a newspaper or a magazine. You know, there's no internet then. And so these had just remained in their family. And they were kind of faded, um, you know, as photos from 
that era would color photos. And uh, so I, I kind of nervously asked if they might still have the negatives and they said, Oh yeah, we have all of them. So they ultimately gave me about 450 mostly color, but some black and white negatives. Uh, and when I started going through them and scanning them image by image, I just, I mean, I couldn't even believe it because there were photos of aspects of the production that have never been, had never been photographed otherwise, you know, and not all. So all these photos served multiple purposes for me on the book. A, um, it allowed me to have a much more rich set of images to have in the book. I ended up getting a lot of images from other sources as well, but um, but the, the photos from the Lloyd family made up a lot of them. Um, uh, but also I, I was able to, if you can imagine like the guy in the basement trying to solve the serial killer mystery, who's got like photos and documents and strings connecting everything. That was kind of my life <laughs> for a long time. That was all in my mind. I didn't literally have a basement with all that going on, but I was taking all this in and when I was seeing these photos, suddenly there were connections made or there were, you know, maybe I heard a story from someone that seemed a little outlandish and I had never heard it from anyone else, but here's a photo corroborating that story. Um, and then the other thing that ended up being useful is that on the occasions where I could actually meet with people in person, although I also did it online sometimes as well, I would show them photographs. And that would bring up stories that these people probably never would have remembered or thought to tell me, but their memories were sparked by seeing an image. That happened a ton with Leon Vitale uh, when I sat with him and showed him photos. I'll just give you an example of that. Um, I had a photograph of Dan Lloyd and his brother and Vivian Kubrick on the back lot at Elstree. And there was a, a, a fourth person in the photo, this man with kind of a bushy mustache and curly hair. And I never saw him in any of the other photos that I had. And at that point I had gotten to know just about every crew member by sight and could name them except for maybe a small handful of stagehands. Um, but I didn't know who this man was and I had just kind of forgotten about it. I didn't think much about it. Could have, he could have been anybody. Um, but when I was sitting with Leon and showing him the photos, when that one came up, he said, Oh, you know who that is? And I said, no. And he said, um, that's Werner Herzog. <laughs> and I was like, oh, really? I, and he's, you know, he's in his 30s in the photo. So he he wasn't recognizable as he is now. I mean, even now I look at the photo and I can tell it's him, but it, like I never would have known it was him. And so not only did I find out who this person was in this photo, but Leon went on to tell me a whole story about Werner being on the set. And Werner was on the set the day that they were filming Danny riding around, around and around the Colorado Lounge on his uh, on his three wheeler. And Leon told me that as they were shooting, um, Ivan Sharik, the 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 sound recordist, said to Stanley after a take, he's like, I, "You should listen to this. I don't know if this sounds good. This alternating over the rug, over the floor, it's kind of jarring." And so Stanley got on the cans and listened and he said, yeah, you're right. I don't know if, um, I don't know if that's going to work. Maybe we need to rethink this. And Werner Herzog spoke up and said, I actually think it sounds kind of cool. <laughs> and so Stanley listened to him as Stanley did listen to everybody and uh, considered that maybe it was interesting. 
And it was when they were in dailies the next day or two days later watching it with the sync sound that everybody realized, oh my God, this is incredibly interesting. So if it were not for Werner Herzog, that kind of iconic repetition of Danny riding around maybe wouldn't have been part of the film. So that is just one example of many, many times where something as simple as a photograph ended up sparking a whole very interesting story that might have been left untold. And the book is just is, is filled with them. How lucky. So, I know I've rambled for a long time here. I will stop and let you ask questions and steer me wherever you want to steer me. I. Great. Yeah. Keep rambling. <laughs> uh, All right. <laughs> uh, this is just a slight off topic, but uh-huh. you started this project back in the 90s. Am I right about that? Or no, it's been 10 years. I first I first visited the archive in 2010. And I first, I went back through my emails. I first um, approached Jan Harlan in 2012. Um, so it was, a, it was 10 years from then to having the book finished. Boy, time really flies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did, well, so the, actually my question was, did you ever think about talking, we, talking to Stanley while he was alive? Or was this like he did? I would have loved to, but I mean, this 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 project wasn't even anything back then. I was just getting started as a filmmaker myself. There was like, I had no inroads to talk to Stanley Kubrick. I don't know why he would have wanted to speak to me. So it wasn't even anything I ever even considered. And of course, I was really sad when he died, not only in that there were you know, this kind of sinking, sad feeling that there would never be any more Stanley Kubrick films, but also any hope I might've had about ever getting to meet him someday, of course, were dashed. Um, I actually had a dream once that I met him, interestingly enough. And uh, yeah, and it was very vivid and long. And um, I won't go into that now, but it was, I, I feel in that way, when you have a really vivid dream that like something actually happened, I, I kind of feel like it happened in a weird way. Um, and I told Vivian about this dream and she said, yeah, that's how my father would have talked. So what he would have said. <laughs> so whatever. Um, uh, anyway, sorry to get back. Have I did I ever meet Stanley? No, I, I it's, it's, it's meant a lot to me recently that both Katerina Kubrick and Christiana both at this party, at this unveiling party. I had met both of them. I'd spent time with them. But at the party, they both told me independently that they thought Stanley would have enjoyed meeting me and talking to me. And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they were just being nice. But, um, you know, of course, it made me feel wonderful that they would have even have said that. You sure seem like the kind of guy Stanley liked. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, um, I'm certainly passionate about everything that I do. Um, I feel like I'm wired like Stanley in some ways in terms of how detail oriented I am in my filmmaking. I have tastes similar to his, but that's because of him. You know, I make choices sometimes that I know consciously or sometimes subconsciously that uh, or unconsciously that are influenced by his films. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got a good, th th one of the things that's really nice about this book that was never the plan 
but it kind of happened, was that this book is not only a book about the making of The Shining, like a day-by-day accounting of the making of The Shining, but it's also very much, it very much offers a lot of new insight and glimpses into who Stanley was as a person and who St- and how Stanley was as a filmmaker. There's a lot of material that I, I had never read anywhere before that came out of new interviews. So we actually have a number of sidebars through the book, many, that kind of step off to the side of The Shining and focus more specifically on Stanley. So I think, you know, for whether you're a fan of The Shining or not, if you're a Kubrick fan, there's going to be um, just a lot of new stories to read. And it and it and they really humanize Stanley. Um when people ask me what the biggest thing I got out of doing this project was, I say it's just that. It's that it humanized Stanley because we all, I don't have to tell you guys, and like you're here to talk about Kubrick's films. Um, everyone puts Stanley up on a pedestal as being this brilliant filmmaker, which he was, absolutely. But he was also a human being and he had insecurities and he didn't always know what he wanted. Um, I think a lot of people assume that Stanley just kind of dreamt up these films and then birthed them into the world. But, um, you know, I know from my work on The Shining and I know from reading Matthew Modine's diaries that he kept during Full Metal Jacket that that's not really not the case. I mean, Stanley was often fishing around and didn't really know what he wanted. And in in both the case of The Shining and Full Metal Jacket, he was well into production without even knowing how the movie was going to end. Um, he was always second guessing himself. He was always asking everybody a million questions. Um, and sometimes those questions were just because he wanted to learn more about what those people knew. But often it was also that he didn't have answers himself for what he was creating. And he just wanted to get as many opinions as possible. Obviously, ultimately he's the final arbiter. He's the director of the film. He's going to, what's in the film is going to be there because he decided he wanted it there. But um, a lot of people don't know about that part of Stanley, that he was always asking people questions. I mean, Gordon, you can speak to this. You were sitting there alongside him, cutting with him and cutting music. And, and you know, maybe you have something to say on that topic. I'm sure, I know you do. Yeah. Yeah, I had my head turned sideways then because I've, I've written my own account, which is now with a publisher and I should be hearing very soon. Um, it, it should be happening. Um, I, I, there's a there's a picture of Stanley and of course I can't find it now. I can't remember where I put it. It could be it's not actually in this draft. But there's this wonderful sketch of him taken from his left side, taken, I think done from a photograph by a talented artist. And he's got every whisker of Stanley just right, as I remember. But it's a fabulous image because it's exactly how I remember sitting at the Steenbeck with him. You know, he's literally two feet away from me, three feet away on my right. And that was the profile. And that picture is, uh, that sketch is exactly as I remember him. Looking and at Gordon, it. is that is, was it the sketch done by um, by Tom Smith? No, no, I've got I've got lots of Tom Smith Smiths in. No, no, that, that's completely different. No, this was a um, a big face picture of his face from the left, and less um, cartoon like. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, um, I've got quite a lot of Tom. I, I, I was fortunate in that. Tom Smith gave Vivian a whole, all his um, pictures photocopied 
and I photocopied those, and they're very high quality. And I so I got that directly from Vivian from Tom Smith, and and Vivian gave them to me basically. So, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, for those of you who don't know about this, uh, Tom Smith was the makeup artist on the film. So he's responsible for like the the, the old woman in room two three seven and uh, some of the blood work and the bruise on Danny's neck that kind of thing. Um, Tom had a lot of downtime on the set, and so he 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 was an artist as well, and so he spent time drawing caricatures of a lot of all of the cast and quite a few of the crew members. I got my hands on an original set of those as well. Yeah. And we've reproduced them in the, that's part of the book. Um, yeah. um, so the, the book as it's the, the finished book, we, we spent a long time trying to figure out what it should be, like what form it should take. It was very important to me that the book be a very thorough accounting, like the definitive accounting of the making of the film. And so I knew it was going to be extremely text heavy. Um, the problem is Tashin is not known for publishing text heavy books. You know, they do very image forward books maybe with some essays and captions. Um, so when I, when I spoke to Benedict Tashin and also MM, the design firm that ended up designing the book, I made it clear that this is really what I wanted. And if, if Tashin wasn't going to want to do a book like that, then maybe Tashin wasn't the right publisher, but to their credit, they, they were always on board with me making this book, whatever I wanted it to be. Um, so the challenge came in, like, how do you create a book that's going to have so much text in it that can also really feature photos? And the answer was to have it be more than one book. So, um, for the special collector's edition, um, there are kind of three volumes. One volume is the actual making of the film. It's a small kind of, I wish I had the books here. I actually don't have my set yet. I'm going to have them at the end of the month. Um, it's a small red book kind of soft cover has a vinyl cover it's very we want it to be very hand holdable so people could sit and read it and not have it be a big coffee table book um and that's a roughly 900 page book um that also has a lot of photographs in it um then the second volume is uh was inspired by the scrapbook in the film the scrapbook that stanley shot but ended up not using but it's present in a ghostly way throughout the film we made this big oversized scrapbook and it's ostensibly a photo folio, like one photo per page, just a big, beautiful, uh, a book, very long book, um, full of photographs that cover the entirety of, uh, of production, pre-production production. Um, and also has quite a few, uh, stills from deleted scenes, which I will circle back to as we talk. I wanted it to be inspired by the scrapbook from the film. The scrapbook plays a big part in Stephen King's novel, and it used to play a big part in uh, Stanley's film as he shot it, but then he ended up deciding to excise all of that material. Um, they have one of the scrapbooks in the Kubrick archive, but when I went through it, I discovered that it it wasn't the scrapbook that was used for filming. I don't know if it was a prototype or if it was used just for I don't know what it was for. I think it was a prototype of what it could look like because there are no articles in it having to do with the Overlook Hotel. There's just all, it's just old vintage newspaper articles. But I have photos of them filming Jack going through the scrapbook and clearly on the page, I'm seeing images and, and articles that were not are not in the scrapbook that's uh, in London. So 
I took it upon myself as a very big project to kind of create a um, kind of a, a facsimile of, of what that scrapbook might have looked like. There were a lot of remnants of, uh, of articles and, and text that had been written for articles about the Overlook. There were a lot of different bits and bobs in the archive, just none of the, well, there were maybe even some of the finished articles that, uh, that had been laid out. But um, I used it as a jumping off point to create my own version of that. And so I created a whole series of, um, of articles that were kind of about the sordid history of the Overlook. And I tried to make everything um, feel real and at the level of work that Stanley would have demanded. So we make it very clear in the book that this is my work uh, and that the original doesn't exist. Um, but I'm really proud of the job I did. I think people will find it really cool. Um, so when you open the scrapbook, you just, you're faced with kind of page after page as if you're leafing through the scrapbook. And even the exterior is modeled after the actual scrapbook. But over time, the photos start disappearing. You start getting these pages, um, you know, like this, where, where there's an article missing. Kind of like uh, you have an old house and you take a photo off, the, a picture off the wall and, and the, the wallpaper has been sun faded everywhere except where the photo was. So we have these articles start disappearing over time until eventually you're turning page after page where it's nothing but these blank images. So it, it, was, it was just to kind of evoke this kind of ghostly, uh, uncanny feeling. And then you finally get to the first image in the book and, and then you go through and the whole rest of the book, like I said, is literally one photo per page. Um, I did some back of the napkin math recently, and I found that of all the images in the book, not counting actual stills from the finished film, 75% of them have never been published. Wow. And of those 75%, a pretty healthy percentage of those have never been seen by more than a handful of people. That's said anything. I, uh, I spoke to Steven Spielberg for the book because I had heard that he had been on the set. And so I, he agreed to talk with me and um, you know, all the stories he had to tell about Stanley are in the book. Um, but I, I, I later asked if he would write the forward for the book. And he said he rarely granted uh, requests like that, but since this was the shining and Stanley, he would consider it, but he needed to see the finished book. So when, it, when the book was all done and laid out, I sent it to him and he uh, ultimately agreed to do the forward. Um, so he, he wrote the forward for the book. Yeah. I, I asked Spielberg what he would tell his friends about the book, if he was going to describe the book to them. And one of the things he said was that he was absolutely astonished at the number of images that he was unfamiliar with. Um, and I think that's going to be the case for everybody who's a fan of the film uh, when, when they see this. It's just image after image that has never been seen. Um, the other thing that Spielberg said that's really lovely uh, that's how he ended the foreword. He said, uh, he said, you must read this book. And, and, and immediately after you put the book down, you need to watch The Shining again. And he said, I don't care if you've seen it 50 times, you'll never see it the same way again. That's, that's Which is a very lovely thing to, for him to have said. Yeah. Um, but I think it's true. I mean, I found it even myself. I, I, you know, created the book with Jonathan and, uh, when I watch The Shining now, I watch it in a very different way than I used to. You know, the uh, trade edition, when will that 
<laughs> I know that's what everyone wants to know. I was just talking to my wife. It's like, it, it feels weird that I'm doing all this press and stuff promoting the book, but there's only a thousand people in the world who can actually buy it. <laughs> um, but that won't always be the case. Uh, they Tashin doesn't have a, they haven't announced anything. What they typically do with these special editions is they wait until they sell out and then they will subsequently do the trade edition. All I can tell you is that I am, I've been pressuring them all the way to the highest levels to bring it out as soon as possible. So I, you know, maybe I'm hoping it's in six months we'll, we'll have the trade edition out. It actually has to be reformatted. You know, we have, there's, there's some design work that needs to be done to create the set as we envision it for the trade edition. Um, so I'm sorry, I went off on a tangent talking about the scrapbook, but there's actually a third thing in the, in the set, which is, it looks like a box of Jack's typing paper. And when you open it, the first thing you see is a stack of, I, 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 I give the buyers uh, copies of every single all work and no play page because they're all in the archive, except for two I determined were missing. Um, so you get all those pages uh, printed right off of scans of the originals. And then there's another number of other bits of ephemera within that box. There's a, an, a, an absolute perfect facsimile of a continuity script that Vivian gave me, Vivian Kubrick, that she was given at the end of production by June Randall, who was the script supervisor. Um, and it's just a treasure trove of, you know, scenes that Stanley was working on and, and, and hadn't finished figuring out yet bits of paper right out of his typewriter on the set where he was writing new dialogue. And then it was taped into the screenplay continuity, Polaroids, all kinds of stuff. It was just when Vivian sent it to me, it was another one of those moments where I just about died when I opened the package and she graciously allowed us to make a, a you know, an exact replica of it, which is one of the things included uh, in that box. Um, there's also a set of all those Tom Smith caricatures that we talked about earlier. Um, I didn't include every last crew member because, you know, I just, I, 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 there are quite a few. I chose the most interesting ones and all the cast, definitely. Um, I also found a stash of production design sketches very late in the process, uh, kind of conceptual art of how, what the Colorado lounge or the lobby might look like. Um, so we made a book of those. And I also visited the uh, Saul Bass's archives at the Motion Picture Academy Library in LA. That's where all of his archives are. And lo and behold, they had every last sketch that he did on his way to coming up with the final design for the poster, the original poster for The Shining. There's a small handful of those images out in the world because they're in the archive and the archive has printed them. We're specifically Stanley's making notes back to Saul Bass, but that's just five images out of I don't know, a hundred from the very, very beginning of conceptualizing it through the finished art. And we made a book uh, just of those images, which is very cool. So that's the book. <laughs> I think I've kind of like talked about every last aspect of the book now. Well, that is incredible that it may be out as in as soon as six months. I had one. I'm hoping don't hold me to that. Cause I'm not in control of it, but I've, I have let them know that there is huge demand for this. And uh, a lot of people that, you know, aren't willing to drop that kind of money on, or don't have the disposable income to, to drop that kind of money on a book, um, who are very disappointed that they couldn't buy it right now. And I completely empathize and I wish it were different, but th this is just, we ended up getting this very beautiful deluxe edition out of it um, that now makes the trade edition that much greater. 
Excellent. Uh, you mentioned on another podcast, uh, one of Jonathan Rensler's great contributions, which was the structure of the making of. Mm-hmm. Tell the group that. Uh, Yeah. Well, Jonathan, like I said, Jonathan had written a number of these making of books and the way he structures them is he, one of the most important things for him is to get his hands on the daily production reports. And these are the reports that are drawn up by usually the first assistant director, sometimes the production manager at the end of every shooting day where they're reporting back to the studio exactly what was shot that day and how much footage was shot. That's something that you can rely on. You can't rely on call sheets because call sheets are aspirational. That's what they're hoping they can shoot. And especially on a Stanley film that, you know, those were often thrown out the door. Um, But the production reports were really valuable. I had to go into the Warner Brothers archives to get those for, um, and a lot of other wonderful material for Jonathan. And that's where Jonathan kind of starts. I mean, he, because like I said, it's literally a day by day accounting of the making of the film and, and the, the daily production reports kind of provide that framework, at least for the production of what was going on on a day by day basis. And then you can start taking all these stories that you hear from interviews, bits and bobs, and you can start plugging them into place chronologically. And over time, over the many years we spent writing the book, finally the whole thing kind of came into shape. Um, the, the first draft, I think, was about one third longer than what we ended up with. We did edit it down quite a bit. But um, for any super, super fans, there is a longer version of the book that exists. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks to Lee Unkrich, Gordon Stainforth, Howard Berry and Mark Lentz. More coming very soon from Lee, uh, where we go deeper into some of the fascinating stories surrounding the making of The Shining. Check out our two Facebook groups, the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. Also, we have two great YouTube channels again for the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society and Kubrick's Universe. Coming soon, we speak to Kubrick's first producing partner on The Killing, Paths of Glory and Lolita, Mr. James B. Harris. Kubrick's music composer on his first four features, the late, great Mr. Gerald Freed. More from our unreleased archive, including Leon Critch again, Malcolm McDowell, Vincent Labruto, Leon Vitale and Mike Kaplan. New interviews with The Shining's Horace Derwent actor, Brian V. Towns, Full Metal Jacket's Rafterman, actor, Kevin Major Howard, and Eyes Wide Shut's Mandy and Domino, actors, Julianne Davis and Vanessa Shaw. Thanks again to our latest patron, Hal 9000. Please head over to patreon.com. Search Kubrick's Universe and offer your support from as little as £1 or $1 a month. On behalf of Jason Furlong and myself, Stephen Rigg, thanks for listening. It's Kubrick's Universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. These guys aren't scientists. They're making it up as they go along. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Over and out. This show comes to you from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society. Mm-hmm.